Well, as we begin, I'd like you to listen to the account of one young man as he walked into a rural church service. The first shed we come to, the preacher was lining out a hymn. He lined out two lines, everybody sung it, and it was kind of grand to hear it. There were so many of them, and they'd done it in such a rousing way. Then he lined out two more for them to sing, and so on. The people woke up more and more and sung louder and louder, and towards the end, some began to groan, and some began to shout. Then the preacher began to preach, and begun in earnest, too, and went weaving first to one side of the platform and then to the other, and then a leaning down over the front of it with his arms and his body, going all the time and shouting his words out with all his might. All his might. And every now and then, he would hold up his Bible and spread it open and kind of pass it around this way and that, shouting, It's the brazen serpent in the wilderness. Look upon it and live. And people would shout out, Glory, Amen. And so he went on, and the people groaning and crying and saying Amen, and so on. You couldn't make out what the preacher said anymore on account of the shouting and crying. Folks got up everywheres in the crowd and worked their way just by main strength to the mourner's bench with tears running down their faces. And when all the mourners had got up there to the front benches in a crowd, they sung and shouted and flung themselves down on the straw, just crazy and wild. Those are the words of Huckleberry Finn as uh, narrated or written by Mark Twain, the famous 19th century novelist. And... What you can detect in the way that Huck recounts his experience in this church service is that he is expressing criticism. And really sh sharply what he's saying, what he's criticizing is an emotionally manipulative pastor and a group of weak-minded and feeble Christians being manipulated and thus provoked to all kinds of emotional responses and so forth. And this kind of criticism from Twain, of course, was not uncommon in his writings. You can go and you can do research about the variety of criticisms that Twain would level against his own experience of religion. And of course, his criticisms come with an opposite implication. The idea that those who would see religion and the truth claims of the Bible, those who see, those who see religion in that way, view themselves as liberated as more noble, as more realistic, as not blinded and weak-minded. That sort of criticism sometimes is semi-justified. We as the church should, of course, be quick to identify and to decry abuses in the church, like the one that we read here. But at the same time, the idea of skepticism in God and in the Bible and the truth claims that it makes is commonplace. And Twain, I'm sure, was aware of this, but skepticism and criticism and the idea that the fool would say that there is no God is an idea as old as time. It always has been, and it will be so until Christ returns. And what we'll see in our passage today is that there's a group of people who express similar skepticisms or criticisms, and in the end, unbelief, as they speak to the Son of God. Now, the situation they were in, that we'll see in our passage, and the situation that Twain and Huck Finn was in, is the same as the situation that we are in, because, as you know, we are aware of the truth claims of the Scripture. Some of us to differing degrees, but all of us in the room, at least at this point, having sat through the reading of Scripture and the singing of the songs we sang, song, songs we sang have a decision to make. 
How will we respond to the truth claims of the Bible? So to overview where we're going this morning, our passage falls in basically three parts. A brief setting and then two paragraphs. The brief setting is in verses 22 through 24. We'll cover those briefly. And then each paragraph we'll cover, cover in turn and we'll cover them in similar fashion. The main point of the whole passage is that the skeptics, in this case the Jewish people surrounding Jesus, are exposed. And on the other hand, Jesus is affirmed. Those are our two handles, exposure and affirmation. And each paragraph will look at both of those ideas. So to begin with the context. You can read there in the beginning of the passage in verse 22 that it says it was at the time of the Feast of Dedication. So what's happened here is John is alerting you we have changed settings. We are no longer in the same place and time as we have been at the beginning of chapter 10. Now the Feast of Dedication, that may or may not be a familiar idea to all of us. It is not what you call a biblical feast. So a lot of these feasts you can look in the Old Testament and you can say, oh, this is the feast of the Passover. We've seen that in John. Or, oh, this is the feast of booths or tabernacles. And, oh, we've seen that in John. Well, you won't find the feast of dedication, but John wanted to let us know that's what's going on in the context. So the feast of dedication arose in the period between Malachi and Matthew, the intertestamental period. In the year 167 B.C., the Syrians came, entered Jerusalem, and at minimum took over the temple. Now you guys know from the Old Testament the temple is the place where God's presence uniquely and specially dwelt. And nothing unclean was to enter the temple. And when the Syrians conquered the temple, or took over the temple rather, they put in an altar to a pagan god right in the middle of the temple. And of course, this was abhorrent to the Jews. Three years later, they did manage eventually to take back over the temple. That was the year 164 B.C. And of course, when they took it back over, they rededicated it. And so you have what you see in our passage here, the Feast of Dedication. And it occurred, as it says there, in winter. As a bit of an aside, just for your awareness, is this actually came to be known uh, as Hanukkah. This is what Hanukkah is. But that's the context. And then in verse 24, is the last bit of context here, the Jews, it says, gather around him. So he's in the temple, in the portico of Solomon, a place associated with Solomon who's related to the Davidic promise of the Messiah who would come, 2 Samuel 7, the throne of the seed of David forever. He's in this very unique and special place. And then he gets surrounded by those who are the people of God. And they ask him this question. And they say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, how are we to think about that inquiry? You, you might think at first perhaps that's a genuine seeking of truth. But the context, I think, suggests we should understand that differently. Because already, multiple times, they've rejected him. These are the same group of people in Jerusalem, who have already been very angry with him. At the end of chapter 8, they tried to stone him. Previously, they've tried to seize him and arrest him. They've not been at all happy with him, and they do understand the kind of claims he's making. So really, when they say this, we should probably understand what amounts to basically a trap. We just want you to say the words, I am the Christ, because then we'll have you. It's the kind of thing that you read of frequently in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's probably what's going on here. 
So if you can picture that scene, there's Jesus in the temple, surrounded by those whom he had made. And really, what's worse, these were the Jewish people. They had the promises. They had the covenants. And here's their Messiah right in the middle of them, and they're trying to trap him. Tell us if you're the Christ. So we move to our first paragraph, which begins in verse 25 and finishes, we'll say, in verse 31. And as I said, we'll have exposure and affirmation. So first, exposure. I think there are three matters about which Jesus exposes them. They are, he says, you do not believe, not even the works that I've done can persuade you. And number three, you are evidently not my sheep. So first, they don't believe. They say, tell us if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And he says, as you can read there, I told you, or I did tell you, but you still don't believe. I've already been frank enough with you, but you refuse to believe. You may have a question, when was it that he said that he was the Messiah? Well, if you look back in John, you won't find him saying anything like, I am the Christ. It's not there. He didn't use the verbatim language that they're asking for. Probably the reason that he did not do that is because of when they heard the word or used the word Messiah, there were all kinds of political ramifications bound up in that word. And so if he says to them, I am the Messiah, they're going to think something very different than what he means. So he's not willing to say, I am the Messiah, and be misunderstood in mainly a political sense. But he had said so many things to them. Really what he had done is he had described to them who he was and who the Messiah really was meant to be according to the scriptures. So he had said, he had talked often about his relationship with the Father. He had talked about being sent down from heaven, chapter 6. He had claimed, as we heard last week, to be the Davidic shepherd of Ezekiel 34. And we could go on and on and on at the end of chapter 8. I am, he used those words, and of course that's where they want to stone him. And There's many, many examples of messianic claims that Jesus has already been pretty explicit about with the Jewish people. So he won't use their verbatim language, but he has told them in really more accurate terms that he is the Messiah. So he says to them, I did tell you, and yet, despite everything I've told you, you still don't believe. Exposure number two. Not only had he told them, but he had also showed them. So look there in verse 25. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So you might remember in chapter 5, there was the lame man. He'd been lame for 38 years. And Jesus comes and he says, pick up your pallet and go home. And he does. And of course, as you remember, it creates a huge stir because this happened on the Sabbath. And they're very unhappy with Jesus about this. But nonetheless, they'd all seen the lame man miraculously healed. Or in chapter 9, from just a few weeks ago, we read about the man blind from birth, who Jesus came and he put clay on the man's eyes. He'd been blind his whole life, and Jesus opened his eyes. Remarkable miracle. And people would say, no one can do these kinds of things unless he's really sent from God. So Jesus is pushing upon them the proof of his miracles and saying, you have evidence that I am who I'm claiming to be, but you won't believe it. Now, if you're here today and perhaps you're not yet a Christian, sometimes you may be tempted to say, well, if I only had more evidence, 
if I only had more proofs, or perhaps if I could only have lived back in the day when Jesus lived, well then perhaps I would believe. But I think Jesus' arguments here really militates against that line of thinking because these are the people who had all those things that you might wish you had, and he tells them, you still don't believe. They had all the evidence they could ever want, and they still don't believe. So he's exposed them now twice. Third exposure. The reason that they don't believe, he tells them, is that they are not his sheep. Now you have to be careful here what is meant when he says, you don't believe, verse 26, because you are not my sheep. He does not say that they first reject him and then he labels them not my sheep. It's, it's not like that. It's not that they reject him and so Jesus plucks them from his sheepfold and kicks them out. It's actually the other way around. The issue is that because they are already not his sheep, they act like those who are not his sheep act. And they don't believe. These are sheep who just do not know this shepherd. They're not a sheep. This is, can be, for many people, a sticking point. But it is certainly the way that verse 26 is laid out for us. It's crystal clear. And it's also further confirmed in verses 27 and 28. So I'm going to read for us in just a moment verses 27 and 28. It's a passage that I think many of us, at least speaking for myself, have read in thinking about the true sheep and who are the true sheep and how do they act. But take note that in the context, he's actually describing the true sheep in order to say to the people who've surrounded him, you're not like my true sheep. It's actually an indictment against them. You don't act like true sheep. So listen to verse 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal, um, pardon me, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus knows that the unbelieving group of Jewish people around him are not his sheep because he sees how they act. So Chrysostom, Chrysostom said it this way, if they don't follow, It's not because he is not a shepherd, but because they are not sheep. Three exposures. Now we'll turn to affirmation. The the umbrella concept that Jesus is affirming here, the string that binds them all together, is he's affirming his own relationship with the Father. That's what he's after. The crowd won't recognize this. They don't recognize that he's been sent from God. They say he has a demon. They say he's a false teacher. They say he's a blasphemer. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The Father sent me. So there are three ways that Jesus does this in the paragraph. First, briefly, we've already said, he's agreed with them. He's affirmed that he is the Messiah. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly, I already told you. Second, he says that he is one with the Father. That's in verse 30. He's one with the Father. Now, of course, this is the comment that drives them in an immediate sense to stoning. Right after that is when they pick the stones up. There's something remarkable about Jesus using the words, I am one with the Father. Now, what leads up to this idea that he's one with the Father really begins in verse 29. So he's been talking about his sheep and his relationship with the sheep. And there in verse 29, he brings in the father. He says that the father's the one who gave him 
the sheep. And not only that, because the Father is greater than all, no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. But he's just said no one can snatch them out of my hand. And so the picture that Jesus paints is that you have the Father and the Son working in conjunction to save a people for himself from all eternity. And in that sense, they're one, which is the claim that Jesus makes. Now, is the idea that they are one a total dissolution of any distinction in any sense, an absolute removal of all distinctions between the Father and the Son? And the answer to that question is no. No, no. The catechism that we teach our children is right. How many gods are there? There is one God. In how many persons does this one God exist? In three persons. Who are they? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about a removal of any distinction whatsoever, but he's talking about a union and a oneness in purpose. It was the Father who sent him in a common aim and a common goal that he would carry out to save a people for himself. Third affirmation. Jesus is the true shepherd that will save all, keyword all, the sheep given to him by the Father. In our passage from last week, the first half of John 10, Jesus said that the shepherd, the true shepherd, lays his life down for the sheep. And here, he builds upon that. He goes further and he adds three elements about being the true shepherd in his saving of the sheep. Number one, he will give eternal life to his sheep. Verse 28. And they will by no means perish. Now in the original language, there's not a more emphatic way to make something negated. You can't be more strong about saying this will never happen. So you could paraphrase and you could say, they will by no means perish. I won't lose any of them. And number three, no one can snatch them from my hand. Saints, what he's describing has been called by many people the perseverance of the saints. He won't lose any of his sheep. He came, he laid his life down, he hung on a bloody cross as God's divinely approved substitute for sinners to absorb all of the wrath of God. And he was vindicated proven to be who he said he was finally at the resurrection from the dead, his resurrection from the dead. He won't lose any of those for whom he, is, he has died and whom he is saving. He'll lose none of them. I'm going to read to you from good brother John Murray on this subject, and he's talking actually about this passage in John chapter 10. What is it that Jesus says? Quote, my father who hath given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. When we inquire as to the force of this, this statement, that no one is able to snatch out of the Father's hand, we find it in the preceding words of Jesus. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What Jesus is dealing with is obviously the infallible security of those who have been given unto him by the Father. They shall never perish. And that same security is guaranteed 
by the fact that no one will snatch them out of his hand. It is to confirm that truth that he says, my father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of the father's hand. The guarantee of infallible preservation is that the persons given to the son are in the son's hand, and though given to the son, they are still mysteriously in the father's hand. From the hand of neither can anyone snatch them. This is the heritage of those who are given by the Father. Have we not in this truth new reason to marvel at the grace of God and the immutability or unchangeability of his love? It is the indissolubility of the bond of the covenant of God's grace that undergirds this precious article of faith. And he quotes Isaiah 54.10. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed but my loving kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord that has mercy on you. There's good reason to praise God for the way that he keeps us. I don't know if you heard the same themes in the song that we just sang a moment ago. Our faith is weak in ourselves. We're frail, we're like wandering sheep. And then again and again the refrain, he will hold me fast. Praise God. We should meditate a bit further, though, on what he means in terms of the perseverance of the sheep, the sheep, pardon me, but in terms of uh, understanding the perseverance of the saints in terms of sheep. So if you can imagine, out on the hill, in the sheepfold, a group of sheep, and they have a good shepherd watching over them. And one sheep wanders off. He ventures into the woods where danger lies. And what will happen? None of them will perish. The shepherd will go and he will get the sheep. Or over here, a sheep falls into a pit and is trapped. And without rescue, he'll perish forever. But the shepherd won't let any of those sheep to die. He goes and he rescues every one of them and puts them back in the sheepfold. Or what about the sheep here who's fallen and has a broken leg? Can you see Jesus coming to get the sheep? To pick it up, to bind its wounds, to cast its break, and to put it back in the fold until it's healed, until the last day? Or what of wolves, predators? They come, they come, and they would love to devour and tear apart the sheep. But he's not like the hired hand who would run when the danger comes. He's willing to suffer for the sheep. In fact, he'll be bitten. He'll be, he'll, he will suffer at the hands of the wolves. But none of the sheep will perish. He wins in the end and he saves all of his sheep. And so Jesus is the good shepherd who saves all of his people. This means that if you're here and you happen not to be a Christian, you couldn't be in a more dangerous scenario. It's like being a sheep who wanders astray and there is no shepherd to protect you. Lost, in a pit, broken leg, savage wolves. There's no protection apart from the shepherd. But if you are a Christian, you could not possibly be any safer. We all have our experience of our feeble faith and our weakness, but Jesus does fully save all of his people until the end, and they all persevere. Let's move now to the second paragraph, verse 31 through 42, and again we'll consider both exposure and affirmation. As I said in verse 31, the people surrounding him pick up stones in order to stone him because of his statement that he and the Father are one. And they would have done it 
but Jesus intervenes. He begins to speak. It wasn't yet his time, as we've seen many times before and you're familiar with. He speaks, and he does so really, again, to expose them, but also to affirm who he is. Two exposures. These will be brief. The first is that he again sets before him his good works there in verse 32. I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? It's like saying, I've done nothing but good. Would you kill me? Everything I've done is good to you. We'll come back to this in a moment. And second, he exposes their unjust intentions to execute him like an angry mob. They're not actually justified in stoning him there on the spot. He's not done anything worthy of stoning. And again, we'll, we'll cover this again in a moment. Let's move to affirmations. There are four matters that Jesus affirms concerning his own relationship with the Father in the paragraph. First, as we've said, his works are good works. He exposes their inconsistency. They don't have any explanation for the power of miracles, and they also don't have any way to account for the fact that he was good. The works that he had done were not just mere displays of power, raw power and authority, but he's healing people. He's having mercy on people. Remember the lame man and the blind man? And there's more. He fed the 5,000 in a different area with the loaves. But everything that he did was good. And this applies not only to his miracles, not only in the context that we're in now, but if you consider what you know to be true of Jesus from the scriptures, everything that he did, always, was good, totally good, through and through. Not, not bad, but positively good and right and wholesome and pure. Everything that he said, everything that he would do, his demeanor, the way he carried himself, the way he interacted with those who were weak and suffering and those who were proud and powerful, the way that he used his power and authority not to be a taker, but to give and to serve and humble and lower himself. Everything that he did was good. Even today, the people who would, like Mark Twain, love to discount the message of the Bible and the testimony concerning Jesus, they don't ever do it on the grounds that he was not good. They do it on other grounds, but there's never an accusation that this man was immoral. He was irrefutably good. And the Jews should have been able to see this, and they weren't able to explain it. Second affirmation, his works, he says, are the Father's works. Now, let's take note just briefly here that three times in the passage, Jesus brings up his works to the crowd, and every single time he does that, he associates his works with the Father. So in verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name. Verse 32, many good works from the Father. Verse 37, the works of my Father. Again, the idea is that Jesus is affirming his relationship with the Father. They would say, as I said, he's got a demon or something else, and Jesus would say, no, he sent me. And the idea is that the Father is in Jesus' corner despite the rejection around him. Third affirmation, Jesus is the Son of God. Why would you stone me for which good work? It's not because of your works, it's because of blasphemy, and you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Is he God or is he not? Is he the son of God? Well, Jesus responds directly to this with Psalm 82, verse 6. And the quotation reads, I said you are 
gods. Now, this is a good time to, to work hard because it can be confusing what Jesus is doing in the way that he uses this Old Testament scripture. Let me explain. <clears throat> they accused Jesus of claiming to be God. They said, blasphemy, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus says, well, now hang on, wait a minute. These people in Psalm 82, they were called gods. And he just quotes to them what it says right there. You could flip back some other time. That's what it says. I said, you are gods, addressed to human beings. Do you stone me because I use the same word for myself that they used? Or that was used about them, rather? Those to whom the word of God came? And the issue, the, the sticking point that's difficult for us to understand is you should ask yourself, is Jesus calling those in Psalm 82 divine? The answer, of course, must be no. But if the word gods was used about them, and he says, well, they use it about me too, does that mean that he is calling himself not divine? The answer there has got to be no. You could be tempted to think that because they're wanting to stone him. That would sure be an easy way to avoid stoning, would it not? But Jesus would not have denied his own deity. He never does that anywhere else in scripture. And here, I don't think he does that either because he immediately follows it up by saying, I'm the son of God. The one who God sanctified and sent into the world. I called myself the son of God. You're stoning me because I use the same word. Well, it's confusing. What's he doing? I think the answer is that he is neither explicitly affirming nor denying his own divinity. He does that other places. John is not shy about that. There's not a question about what the Apostle John thinks about Jesus' divinity, and there's not a question about what Jesus thinks about his divinity. But here, contextually, Jesus is in a room full of people with stones. And I think what he's doing is he's deflating the situation. You could say it another way, and you could say he's exposing that they're inconsistent. You can't stone me on this basis if you want to hold to your Bible because I'm using the same word that they used. And so he de-escalates in the moment their anger, or really, perhaps not even their anger, perhaps just the legitimacy of their intentions. They can't possibly save face and stone him if he brings up this passage of scripture and says, well, they called them this, and here I'm using the word son of God about myself. He's just de-escalating things. Apparently, it works. You read there in verse 31 that they want to stone him, but there's nothing else about stoning him in the remainder of the passage. Later, they want to seize him as the passage closes, but there's no more stoning. I hope that's clear. If it's not, we can talk further about it. It is difficult to understand, but we should move on. You should note that there is, however, a seed planted about Jesus being the Son of God. He does affirm that he used the title. If you look there, uh, let's see, which verse is it? Verse 30. Six, yeah. Verse 36, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? So John is planting a seed. It's not explicit, it's not loud, but it's there. And remember earlier, Jesus has already been affirmed in our passage as the Messiah. And now you have the Son of God. Now that might ring bells in some of your ears because you know the end of the, of the book. John says the reason that this book was written, the reason all these things were written, is so that you may know that Jesus is, two things again, the Christ, the Son of God. And so here we have John affirming, uh, in his own way, both of those things in this little passage, and he'll continue to stay on track with that end for the remainder of the book. 
Fourth and final affirmation. Jesus affirms that he is in the Father and that the Father is in him. Jesus makes one final appeal to them. And in verse 38, he holds out his works one more time. It's repetitious. One more time to appeal to them that they should believe. Look at verse 38. Verse 37, let's back up. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. This is the third time Jesus has brought up the works. They've just set out to kill him. Now he's de-escalated the situation and he's again putting his works before them as grounds for faith. He's telling them, if you don't believe me, based on what I'm saying already, you have got to believe these works. Believe these things. He's pleading with them, despite who they are and despite their intentions, to believe. The God that you claim to worship, he would say, is my Father. I am in him. He is in me. He did send me. Again, we are one. We're united you can't separate us. You should believe these things. But they won't have it. And so in verse 29, they again seek to seize him, and again he escapes. This has happened before. Let's stop and think just a moment about what's going on. John has already affirmed in chapter 1 that Jesus is the preexistent, eternal, creator God. And that he's the Messiah. And now he's standing in the middle of the temple surrounded by a group of Jewish people. These are the people whom God has been especially merciful to in giving them the covenants and the promises, the temple. They were rescued out of Egypt by the Exodus. They had the prophets. They had all the revelation and the word of God. And here he is. And they want to kill him. And they want to seize him. What should he do? He pleads with them. Even if you don't believe, please look at the works that I'm doing and believe on the count of them. Perhaps you know the feeling of pleading with those who don't believe. You try to explain, you try to persuade, you listen carefully so that you can understand their hang-ups or their objections, so that you can respond appropriately. You try to love them well practically so that they'll understand that you really do care about them and that there is something genuine about your own works as a testimony to the truth that you're trying to give to them. And then you leave the conversation, or perhaps many times you've left the conversation, and nothing changes. They haven't believed. This now, at this point in chapter 10, Jesus is in the same position. These whole, this whole series of interactions really began chiefly in chapter 5, and then as we've been saying, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, things are escalating and building. Jesus is repeatedly interacting with the Jews, especially in Jerusalem, excluding chapter 6. But over and over again, and things are getting worse. They tried to kill him. But he's going back again and again and again, and he's talking to them, and he's exhorting them to believe. And they won't listen, but he's continuing to plead and exhort. And you can read in the synoptics where Jesus is weeping and crying, and Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who stones the prophets, kills those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather you as my children to bring you in, and you would not have it. And the point that I want to make to you is the heartache that you feel in pleading with those who don't believe 
is that Jesus knows the same exact feeling. He's been there. He walked that path before any of us ever did. And it's a good path to walk. And it's sober because the people in the chapter, they never come around. John's message at the beginning in verse 11 of chapter 1, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. This chapter ends very similar to, similarly to the way that the whole gospel ends. They don't come around. Now later, many of them will, right? We have the Acts of the Apostles, and we see many people who were Jews were converted, but the general testimony is that they rejected him. It should at least be some solace to us that Jesus, the sovereign God, is willing to plead with people who don't believe and willing to endure the same heartache for you to continue to press on and walk in his footsteps. Some will be saved. They will. They won't all turn away from him. But it is normal to walk through that hard place. And John does, does give us, we'll see in a moment, a change of tune. He does show us that when Jesus leaves, things change. You can look there at the last three verses of the chapter. Jesus goes away again. He goes to the other side of the Jordan, to the place where John, before, had been baptizing. And he remained there. And many came to him. And they said, John did know, you could say, though John did no sign, Everything that he said about this man was true. And look, verse 42. Many, many believed in him there. So on the one hand, you have a mass rejection that Jesus exposes repetitively. But on the other hand, you have many in this case who come and they believe. And again, Jesus is affirmed to be the true shepherd, the Messiah, the one sent from God, the Son of God, who would save a people for himself. And John gives us the note that everything that John the Baptist had said about this man is true. They were remembering back to John's ministry in the wilderness, the baptism of repentance that many of them had received, and the prophecy that John had been giving. And if you go back and you look at what John has said in the Gospel of John, it's a lot. He says a lot of things. I'll give you a sample. He called Jesus the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the pre-existent one. He existed before me. He was the Christ, John says. He's the Lord, in quoting scripture. He's the one who comes from above, the one sent by God. John is very explicit in his testimony about Jesus just in the gospel of John. John the Baptist is explicit, that is. So as I said, on the one hand, you have rejection. But on the other hand, you have these people who come and they do believe. They come around because the shepherd won't lose any of his sheep. Though we walk through this path and there's tears and there's sorrow and people won't come around and again and again and again we plead, you can rest in the omnipotent power of God, the triune God working in harmony in conjunction to save a people for himself and zero of them will be lost because no one can snatch them out of his hand. Jesus won't lose any of those that the Father has given to him. I'm going to end with an old hymn from a man named William Williams. Awake, my soul, and rise, amazed in yonder sea, how hangs the mighty Savior God upon a cursed tree. How gloriously fulfilled is that most ancient plan, contrived in the eternal mind before the world began. Here depths of wisdom shine, which angels cannot trace. 
the highest rank of cherubim, still lost in wonder, gaze. Here free salvation reigns and carries all before, and this shall for the guilty race be refuge evermore. Now hell in all her strength, her rage and boasted sway, can never snatch a wandering sheep from Jesus' arms away.